Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, December 1st. On today's show, we continue our off-season coverage of everything that happened in 2022 in the tennis world. As all of you listeners can see on your podcast feed to end this week, we're focusing on the Americans. On yesterday's show, I had David Part 1, David Gertler join me to name our top 10 American women of 2022 on today's show, we get into the men. And anyone who followed this 2022 season knows 2022 was unequivocally a good year for American men's tennis. Now, of course, there are a few highlight results we are certain to discuss on today's show, whether it be Taylor Fritz's win at Indian Wells, Fritz reaching the year-end finals, all the fun we had with Tommy Paul, Francis Tiafo, Nakashima, Korda, etc. We will get into all of that. And if you are trying to tackle a topic with such depth, there's only one guest I can think of who can help us get through such an exercise. He's the guest who joins us on today's show. Of course, you know him essentially at this point as a co-host of the Mini Break Podcast, an editorial producer for all things Tennis.com and Tennis Channel. Of course, I alluded to David Part 1 for the sake of today's show. He is also David Part 2, but let the record show the number two is my favorite number. It's our dear friend, David Kane. David, welcome back to the Mini Break Podcast. You had a GSP episode-long sabbatical, but now you're back home. How are you doing today? Glad to be back, and that was a pointed use of the word exercise because I am straight from the gym, <laughs> and I'm ready to discuss the American men because people don't talk enough about the state of American men's tennis. <laughs> Certainly not on this show, right? Um, no, no. no, that's it. That's good. That's by the way, a callback. Shout out to you paying attention during our GSP award show. I appreciate that. Um, yes, certainly in 2022, we talked quite a bit about American men's tennis. And the reason we talked about it so frequently is because the American men gave us many different storylines, certainly with their on-court results for us to discuss. And obviously on today's show, we're going to rank our top 10 American men. We'll start at number one, get to 10, talk through the honorable mentions. I want to run through what the American top 10 looks like in a moment. As always, shout out to our dear friends at Tennis Point for their support, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest tennis equipment at the best prices. But DK, I want to start today's show where I started yesterday with David Part 1, and that, of course, is with a more broad look at the state of American men's tennis coming out of the 2022 season. And, you know, it's interesting. 
when you look at the top 100 this year compared to last year, from a sheer number, volume of American men standpoint, there were 12 American men to end the season in the top 100 last year. There are 13 American men in the top 100 to end this season. That said, the big number to me, A, you have nine top 50 Americans. That's the most since the 1990s. And how many times this year did we allude to the 1990s as American men do this for the first time since the 1990s? It was, dare I say, a recurring bit on just about every major social media feed. But, you know, nine top 50 Americans to end the year. And here's the big thing. And with all due respect to people we love here at Crack Rackets, dear friends of the show, in Dennis Kudla, who turned 30 years old this year, in Stevie Johnson, 32 this year, you know, Jack Sock, crazy to say this, he's 30 years old as well. Sam Query is going to be in his mid to late 30s, but he announced his retirement. You know, it's not those guys in the 82-100 ranking holding on to their top 100 spot. Obviously, significant players who can make significant runs, but dare I say, the top 50 window for each of those guys has passed. That's not what we see with this young American group. And I mentioned that word young. Of the 13 top 100 Americans we have, again, 13 top 100 Americans, 10 of the 13 are age 25 or younger. That is a group, as an American tennis fan, you're going to get to ride with for the next decade. And so David Kane, with those statistics in mind, I know how much you love numbers, state of American men's tennis coming out of 2022. Stock up, stock down, stock hold. It's pretty good. (laughs) I'm going to say stock up. I mean, I think there's a strange attitude oftentimes coming from the American men who are certainly asked quite often to opine on the state of American men's tennis. And they frequently downplay, I think, their chances when it comes to taking that next step. They've certainly hit a plateau when it comes to a certain ranking threshold. You have about five or six who are in contention for Grand Slam seeding. And when you talk to a lot of those who are just outside that threshold, that's a big goal for a lot of them to be seated at Grand Slams, to get better draws. I mean, I spoke to Marcus Chiron a few weeks ago and he was saying, you know, I had to play Francis Tiafo in the first round of a Grand Slam. I mean, that's not easy. I had to play Rafa. I had to play some really tough first round opponents. And so they want to get into the position where they can make these deep runs. And so I think that's sort of where the overall mindset is, where I feel like if we're in a tier system, I think a lot of them are maybe mentally tier three, aiming for tier two, and maybe and then the rest are tier two, aiming for tier one. So we're we have a really nice feeding system, and I think in the next one to three years, we're really going to see what a lot of these guys are made of. Yeah, I think that's a very good perspective in looking at it from the big picture. Now, obviously, it's a stock up for American men's tennis. It's an easy question to answer most broadly, and it's the correct answer to have. That said, when you try to break things down categorically, it's how many individuals, regardless of tier they were in entering the season, made some sort of leap throughout the course of 2022, whether it be Taylor Fritz, who clearly had skills, right? The service motion, a gift from the tennis gods, his ability to actually play tennis, hit the ball big from the baseline was never in doubt, but the way things came together for him, the way the fitness continues to improve for Taylor. You know, if he was tier three before the season, he's unequivocally tier two now. If you had him at the bottom of tier two before the season, he's creeped to- uh, closer towards the top of that list. 
you know, obviously Tommy Paul, what he did in the back half of the season, Tiafa, what he did at the U.S. Open, sort of taking his slam success he had had early in his career to his to the next level. That generation made jumps. You also had the next generation below them, guys like Nakashima, who clearly is going to be high up on both of our lists. Sebi Korda, maybe not a great season, but for Korda at age 22 to solidify himself, top 50 back-to-back years, you know he's going to be in the mix. And now the next jump you're waiting for is the hardest jump to make in tennis, but he's in that striking position now as well. And then you had some, obviously, college guys who I love dearly, whether it be Cressy, Garon, Mackey, the Bruins, all solidifying their top 100 spots. J.J. Wolf finally healthy. He's in the top 100. How high is Ben Shelton on your list is maybe the question I'm most fascinated to find the answer for in today's show. I mean, it's just like across the board. I, you want to go lower than that? The Ethan Quinns and Alex Mickelsons of the world who don't worry – There's a look of panic on David's face, listeners. We're not going to get too deep into them today, but it's just like name your tier of American and you can find success. Save it for the Patreon, Ethan Quinn. (laughs) The spillover will be the Quinn Mickelson cases. You don't want to give that. You don't want to give that away for free. That's some bonus content right there. Ground floor of that one. No, exactly. I'll save it for Colette Lewis. But yeah, I think more broadly for the state of American men's tennis, again, Definitely a stock up this season. Now, before we get into our list specifically, and this will be a topic I explore with someone, it might just be you more broadly at some point this December, the next step for American men's tennis. What does 2023 look like? Because I will say my perspective, and you know I like to be rosy glass half full here at Cracked Rackets. I think if the stock holds, If one American ends next year in the top 10, whomever that American may be, and you still have both of these groups, all due respect to John Isner, who if he falls out of the top 50, um, you know, American men's tennis fans, he's carried the banner for so long. We may shed a symbolic tier, but not a serious tier. But as long as these two generations, we'll call them for now, the Fritz group and the Corda group, as long as they hold steady or one of the quarter guys pops maybe in lieu of one of the Fritz guys falling off. As long as this group, though, holds rather steady, I still think that's a winning year. And I still think America's positioned well because of how young this group is. So I think the standard for me going into 2023 to get full circle here is just hold steady. If American men's tennis holds steady next year, that means this year was real, and then I start to feel even better about the back half of the decade as all of these players are in their prime. What say you? I don't necessarily look at it in terms of ranking thresholds so much as individual results, because I think that's the way a lot of these guys think of it as well, because I think their main goal or the main question in their mind is, can I win a Grand Slam? Can I compete for the biggest titles on tour? And in 2022, you had... A guy win a Masters in Taylor Fritz. You had a Grand Slam semifinalist in Francis TFO. And if you can get that again next year, I think that would be a tremendous result. I think, but at the same time, I think you still want to see that third tier pushing towards more Grand Slam, third round, fourth round, Masters, fourth rounds, maybe a quarterfinal. And maybe, I mean, because the thing of it is, is that as much as we are still in sort of a holding pattern with your Djokovic, with your Nadal at the top of the men's game, there is a bit of room for transition. You know, we had a Nick Kyrgios Grand Slam finalist. We had a Casper Ruud, Carlos Alcaraz final. Is it too much to ask to see 
Taylor Fritz make a Grand Slam final, Francis Tiafo, you know, really steal the show at the U.S. Open next year, make a maiden Grand Slam final. I don't think that's necessarily beyond the pale. That may be extra credit, but certainly if we look at what some of the top 10, top five guys were able to achieve on the American side, if they do that again, it's a really great thing. And then again, we're looking at next two to three years, what they can do in the future. Yeah, I think that's well said. And again, that's why I'm fascinated for today's conversation, because I do want to reflect on some players 2022 seasons. But then I also want to look at what they have to do to move forward in 2023, whether it be is sustaining, you know, the litmus test they need to pass. Is there another level for some of these players to jump to? What do we need to see from all of these Americans to, again, constitute 2023 as a successful year. We can do some prognosticating on that, I suppose, here on today's show. But with that said, David Kane, let's get into our top 10 American men of 2022. We'll start at the top of the list. I think the answer for number one is obvious, but I defer to you first to say the answer. I imagine it's the same for both of us. But DK, your top American man in 2022. I hate to bury the lead here. I feel like we needed to start with a J.J. Wolf or a Ben Shelton and really work our way up to number one. But started with number one, Taylor Harry Fritz. Seems like the obvious one when you win Indian Wells, when you get as close to beating Rafa at Wimbledon as he did. I mean, he by, by and large, he had the top line results of all the American men and arguably has the most potential of the top 10 guys that we are looking at over the course of this podcast. Just a complete game believes in himself as one who can really compete with those top guys and, and, you know, at the end of the day, finished in the top eight. So this is someone who's going to be competing in the latter stages of Grand Slam tournaments. He's got to be the top pick. Yeah. Taylor Fritz this season, 46 and 21 overall on the year. Those 46 wins, a top 10 number on the ATP tour. Of course, Fritz had the signature run of signature runs for American men's tennis this year when dare I say, very banged up in that Indian Wells final. He still manages to overcome Rafa in straight sets, of course. Earlier in that event, Fritz getting impressive wins over Rublev, over Demonauer uh, as well. Yeah, and even beyond that, I think the big thing for Fritz is he finally got that second-week Grand Slam monkey off of his back. Round of 16 at the Australian Open where he played a really fun five-set match against Tsitsipas. He reaches quarterfinals of Wimbledon. He uh, obviously a little disappointing at the U.S. Open with the loss to Holt, but then makes up for it, wins Tokyo, and makes the semifinals of the Tour Finals. From start to finish, Taylor Fritz was constantly in the top 10 conversation. And he's the only American man you can say that about this season. That's why I think he's the unequivocal number one. Of course, I mentioned those 46 wins. It's the most for him in his ATP Tour career in a single season. You want to get into the juicy stuff like I know you do, DK, 85.7% hold percentage. It's a career high. It's a top 15 number. 24.5% break percentage. It's a career high. It's a top 20 number. Taylor Fritz, one of just five players to rank top 20 in both hold and break percentage this season. And that's exactly what we saw manifest itself in his results on court. And, you know, again, four Fritz, three different titles and three finals this year. You look for Fritz in terms of against the best of the best throughout the course of this season against top 10 competition this year. Taylor Fritz, five top 10 wins that ranks eighth on the ATP Tour. You look for him in terms of top 20 wins. Fritz had nine that ranks eighth on the ATP Tour. Yeah, I mean... 
this was an unequivocal new ceiling for Taylor Fritz here this year. And, you know, the question I have is how sustainable will it be for Fritz? And is there another gear for Taylor to go to? And I honestly think the answer to that question, DK, is yes, because when I watch Taylor play, I still think some of the limitations he's always had in his career persist. Like, he's still not the best mover when he isn't in the flow of a point. Now, he's a great anticipator, and he's gotten better in his defensive capabilities, but like, you know... To quote Shakira, his hips do lie. I don't think they're the best in and out of corners. Similarly, as as much as he has improved his willingness to move forward to the net, no one will ever accuse Taylor Fritz of being a good volleyer. And if either of those two categories continue to improve, that absolutely raises the ceiling. And those two things specifically, DK, movement and volleys, those just feel like two controllables that can absolutely get better. I mean, it's a, it was a wild year for Fritz. I mean, yeah. let's not forget we were, you know, how many hours out from the Indian Wells final? We didn't even think Fritz was going to play. He, he had goes, knee surgery then, like a year and a half ago. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he's like barely bionic, I think is <laughs> yeah. certainly something that is beneficial to him. I mean, we had that hip surgery and we felt like hip, knee, it was we, he was, we felt like he was going to be out for weeks and he pops up and he's ready to play, you know, in the summer, almost out of nowhere. So, I mean, I think for him, what I, one's strength is also their weakness in many ways. I think the fact that he has been so disappointed at many of his results this year, despite performing as well as he has, I think is something that's going to carry him into 2023. It's going to carry him through that preseason and inspire him to get better. He feels like he's that close. And so when you feel like you're that close, you're going to be motivated to do that much more to get to that new threshold. So I think that's almost the most positive thing looking into 2023. Yeah, just the complete package. Maybe has he improved as astronomically as your Alcarazes, as your Rudes? Maybe not, but he's certainly achieving and improving at quite a rapid pace. And that's going to put him in position to make more Grand Slam quarterfinals, semifinals in 2023. Yeah, and for Fritz to beat Rafa as definitively as he did at the ATP Tour Finals and to beat him again and just, you know, again, the leap Fritz made from Tier 3 to Tier 2, that's the second most difficult leap you can make in all of tennis, obviously after the jump from Tier 2 to Tier 1, but Fritz made that jump. And as impressive as the leap was for even a Ben Shelton who maybe goes from no tier to you know, whatever tier you want to put him in moving forward, but just seriously on the radar, or even Tommy from outside the top 50 to clearly a top 35 guy week in, week out for six months consecutively. You know, Nakashima, same thing, outside the top 50 to clearly inside of it. As impressive as those jumps are, you know, the leap Fritz made is the most significant and the most impressive of the bunch. And again, he has the wins to back it up. 3-0 and in finals, one of them being a Masters event. He freaking made the semifinals of the uh, ATP Tour Finals. First to do it since Jack Sock in, what, 2017, I want to say? That is a remarkably impressive year for a guy 
who was a world junior number one, who made the junior French Open final, loses to Tommy Paul, but then beats Tommy in the junior U.S. Open final. And then right after that, wins a couple challengers in a row, has that run to make the Memphis final if we're really, you know, turning back the clock here. You got to let's not forget forget he played world team tennis that summer for the San Diego Aviators. I mean, we're going to go back. (laughs) Well, should we go back even further when he comes from overseas to win the Easter Bowl that week? Shout out to Colette Lewis, wrote a fantastic piece. He might have even beaten Brandon Holt in that final. I forget who it was. But the point is, for Taylor Fritz, he's a guy who many have circled. Scholars of American men's tennis have long pointed to Fritz as one of the guys who could break out and be a top 10 guy. Well, he was this year. And that's why he's the unequivocal number one. Any final thoughts on Fritz? Are you ready to move on? I mean, the one thing that makes me pause, of course, is the U.S. Open. I feel like it's hard to gloss over that as as inspiring and as as impressive as his year was. That really was kind of his moment, you know, for someone who feels like maybe he's running against the clock. I feel like Fritz is perhaps most aware of sort of the environments around him and the shifting ground beneath his feet and wanting to get in before the door closes. I mean, certainly the way, I mean, if anyone's watching Carlos Alcaraz play tennis matches these days, when he's healthy, you feel like, oh man, like if we're not careful, this man's going to win the next 40 majors in a row and we're, none of us are going to have a shot. So I think that's the only thing sort of like the, the, some of the mental letdowns, even, you know, against Rude in Turin, having sort of that mental lapse, a tough three set or Rude gets out of it, you know, in a third set tiebreaker, you would have looked for Fritz to maybe pull the rug out from under the Norwegian, especially as lackluster as Rude's fall was. You would have thought that Fritz would get that win. So all in all though, I mean, just, to have the great fundamentals and the foundations that he has, I mean, there's only upside looking into 2023 overall. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. Although, again, big chunk of points for Fritz to defend with Indian Wells, Australian Open fourth round right off the bat. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how Taylor responds. That said, he was certainly playing his best tennis to end the year. All right. Number one was the obvious one. And for what it's worth, again, Taylor Fritz right now, ATP rankings number nine. That's the highest ranked American. My list is not just a reflection of what the top 10 Americans in the rankings look like. And I said this on the prior pod about the American women. I want to just reestablish that here. If you want just a generic look, what were the 10 best seasons? Go to the rankings. They have the math for you. Quantified it all out. Max Cressy was technically 13 points better than Tommy Paul this season. We'll get to that argument, who had the better year, maybe a little bit later, although I think the answer is obvious. That said, after one, it gets interesting. David Kane, I defer to you first. Who was your number two American of 2022? I would say after three, it gets interesting. <laughs> I think my top three was pretty clear, but certainly to start with number two, I would go with U.S. Open semifinalist Francis TFO. Again, like if you're putting your weight behind most impressive results, and I certainly for a TFO, I think he's more concerned with getting those big results, getting to the U.S. Open semifinal with a win over Rafa, getting as close as he did to that U.S. Open final, you know, five sets against Alcaraz. It's You can't ask for anything more, you know, just continuing to improve, continuing to thrive in sort of the big stage spotlight and starting to pull together those results on smaller courts. You know, it's one thing to be fueled by 23,000 people. It's another thing to replicate that at your Estorils and your Tokyos. And he was able to do that this year in 2022, making two ATP finals in addition to his uh, major semi. And 
performed well on the grass as well. I mean, I think that was something to really uh, be impressed by in, in a field of impressive American men uh, through the Wimbledon swing. Um, so the fact that he was able to then rebound at the US Open and actually do it for points <laughs> is something to be is to be commended. So yeah, certainly TFO is my number two. Yeah. Look, Francis had an outstanding year, and he is number two in the American top 100, uh, top 10 rankings. He finishes the year 19, obviously that second two Fritz. You look for Taylor, uh, excuse me, for Francis and what he was able to accomplish this season. Tiafo overall on the year, a very, very impressive 35 and 25 overall. But of course, you look for him back half specifically, semifinals of the U.S. Open, beating Rublev, beating Nadal, beating Schwartzman consecutively. Obviously, plays a fantastic match with Alcaraz in the semifinals. He then follows it up by beating Tsitsipas at Lafer Cup, by making the finals in Tokyo, by beating Demonauer, Draper. The Draper win was particularly impressive in Paris on his way to the quarterfinals. Look, Francis was really good to end uh, the home stretch of this season. And obviously he made another final in Estoril earlier this year. You look for Francis overall on the year, I believe. Yeah, he had eight total quarterfinals, you know, two of them at the Masters, 1,000 level or higher it was a really good season for from Francis for from for Francis from start to finish. That's how you say that in English. He also, and I think this is the big thing, sixteen and seven in first matches of events. Now, a wise man once said, "You can't win a tournament in round one, but you can certainly lose it." And early in Tiafo's career, certainly we saw with Australian Opens here, U.S. Open runs there, even some Masters one thousand success, say Miami a couple of years ago. We knew what he was capable of, but to see him, you know, win 70% of his first matches, make eight quarterfinals throughout the course of the year, we just got to see it more frequently. And, you know, no one has ever doubted what Francis is capable of when he's playing his best tennis, but we just got to see close to that best tennis more frequently here this year. Of course, you look for Tiafo, the 82.2 hold percentage, a career high for him. And for the first time, he finishes the season in the top 25 in hold percentage. You know, that first serve was such a weapon at the U.S. Open. And even beyond that, how he was hitting his forehand return against Schwartzman, Nadal, even, you know, Rublev and Elkaraz, he clearly continues to make improvements in what is maybe the one glaring tennis hole in his game. And the rest continues to come along. The improvisational skills, you know, no one is more compelling than Francis Tiafo. No one is better at engaging a crowd than Francis Tiafo. I get why you would have him number two. He's number four on my list, um, if I'm being honest. <laughs> because, yeah, no, it's just, look, I mean, he's it's I, for me, it's a clear top four. And why I have Francis lower, well, I guess let's get to who my number two is, because that can help me explain why I have him lower. I think you can guess who my number two is, um, and it's Ben Shelton at number <sighs> two for me. And the reason I think it has to be Ben Shelton is just like, He's now on everyone's radar. The jump he made this year is the jump every player, you know, again, is just the jump you're looking to make. And for him, obviously, we knew who he was here at Cracked Rackets. He wins the ITA All-American last year, finals of Kalamazoo, and wins the Futures, clinches the national championship for Florida. To do all of that a year ago in what is undeniably an outstanding year of tennis for any human, let alone a 17-year-old, to follow that up, by losing two college matches in singles this year and winning a national title, 
Then from the start of June through the end of November, you make eight challenger quarterfinals. You go 8-0 and in those quarterfinal rounds. You make six challenger finals. You win three straight challenger titles to end the year. You now find yourself in the top 100. He still just turned 20 years old. Like, he goes from... Not in the next – I mean, maybe he was in our next-gen conversation because check the tweets. I said 2027, he'll be top 10 at the start of this year. Um, anyways, that's just a random flyer. You guys should see David's face right now. The point is for Ben to make that jump from you know, outside of anyone's mainstream radar to – pretty firmly in the next-gen 2.0 conversation, right? Like, it's not the Runa Elkaraz tier, obviously, of the next-gen 2.0, but if you're talking about who are the really good 21 and under guys, like, if you guys did the 21 club right now at Tennis.com, I guarantee you Ben Shelton would be a top-five name. And that leap, to me, is more impressive than what Francis did because I knew what Francis was capable of. I knew he had this level in him. But I didn't know Ben was going to come on this strong this fast. And I just – I value that leap more. I think I am more impressed by his year than I am by the jump Tiafo made. I mean, I'm glad you brought up 2027 because, sure, in 2027, he would be a formidable contender for top two on a top 10 U.S. men's tennis <laughs> list. Unfortunately, the year is still 2022. And he's number nine on my list because, yes, it's very impressive. He won three straight challengers. That's great. Ideal in tour level, unfortunately. And, and I think I would also argue that I did not see Francis Tiafo making a Grand Slam semifinal coming. I certainly saw him making fourth round quarterfinal. This was a massive leap for Tiafo. And again, the fact that he was able to do it not on the challenger level, but on the ATP 250 500 level is far more commendable to me. And, I, and again, if you're going to put all your emphasis on potential and looking forward to who is the top 10 men of the future – then sure, Ben Shelton is a great pick for your top three, top five, top two, probably number one if you're looking at, again, projecting deep or even, you know, mid to deep future. But presently, in the present, I would say who had the most impressive, who had the more impressive season? I'm going to go with the U.S. Open semifinalists. But this is why I'm me and you're you. Well, the case for your argument as well is Francis makes eight tour-level quarterfinals this year. He's made 24 total in his career. So a third of his career quarterfinals come in one season. Like, yeah, that's a new career high for Francis. And that certainly takes him into that clearly a top 32 guy. Like, you feel like Francis should absolutely be seated at the slams. You can't say that about Ben Shelton. And I just made the case for the leap Fritz making being the most impressive thing. That's why I value it most. But the sheer span of tears Ben Shelton has leaped up via the results of his 2022 season. Like, come on now. I know I'm the proprietor of the Ben Shelton bandwagon, but ninth is way too low. For him to be on your list, David Kane. Like, if you're telling the story, if your top 10 list is supposed to tell the story of the 2022 season in American men's tennis, as you know, I like my list to do, what will you remember this year for? I think first and foremost, you're going to remember it for Fritz winning in Indian Wells. I think second of all, you'll be like, oh, yeah, that's the year Ben Shelton went godlike at the challenger level and just became a household name. First of all, in my defense, I did not double check the challenger results before I compiled my list. 
my mistake. I was. I <laughs> we thought did we were a challenger <laughs> award show. We recorded it earlier today. It's Friday's mini break. But um, yeah, that's why it's fresh. I've, I've, I've been commandeered for that for that <laughs> podcast. You could throw in some of my like. You gotta have like a soundboard of my reactions. I could do some <gasps> gasps for you. <laughs> But first of all, we're we're already dealing in quite a fantastical situation in which I'm going to be sitting on my couch, specifically remembering U.S. men's results of 2022. I think that's quite <laughs> it's quite it's quite low on the scaffolding of sort of like 2022 achievements. We're already in something of like a a smaller pond when we're talking about results. So. Will I remember Ben Shelton's breakthrough? Will I remember the fact that he beat Casper Rude? Probably if he continues to, you know, achieve at this pace and is a top 30 player and top 20 competing for top 15 in the next two to three years. But no, it, if we're only looking at this amount of result absent of potential, no, I'm probably not going to remember Ben Shelton's season if he does not achieve bigger and better in the years to come. This Far is where I wish our partnership had spanned multiple years so I could ask, where'd you have Brooksby on your list last year? Because if you had Brooksby really high on your list last year, the same argument you made for him last season would apply to Shelton this year as well. I'm not saying you do. No, no it but is... Brooksby made a Brooksby made an ATP final last year. Didn't he make a Yeah, but Shelton only final? had six months. Yeah, Newport final. No, Andy won a set 6-1 off Djokovic, which I know in your mind is the same yes. as what Shelton did to Rude at Cincinnati. Um, uh, I've he beat him. He beat Rude. Brooks the beat, problem was Djokovic. Cam Nori I mean, gave Ben Shelton the business in that final follow-up Cincinnati match. But and Brooksby didn't just like challenge Djokovic. He'd beaten an informed Karatsev in the round prior. I'm pretty yeah. sure in five sets on court 17. I remember my U.S. men's tennis results from 2021. Yeah, but, but Ben um, beat August no, Holmgren in three sets in in the NCAA final. This is unserious. I'm glad. Listen, I'm glad we're talking about Ben Shelton now because we won't have to talk about him as much in 55 minutes when we get down to the bottom of my list. So we'll get this out of your system now. Yeah, look, I have him two. I think the leaf he made needs to be recognized. You have him nine. Like I said, we were going to disagree from this point onwards. So I, I knew from guess- the tone when you were running through TFO's results that there was something coming. It was, you can make an argument for TFO. It was a very impressive look, year. I have said, Francis four. I think Francis had, had, had a fa- I think Francis had a fantastic year. And again, Francis second best American according to the rankings at 19. Shelton, 13th best American at number 97. Shelton, also the youngest American now in the ATP top 100. Forgive me for being me, uh, David. I would also take umbrage finally with the fact that that Ben Shelton is on everyone's radar. He's certainly on people's radars and he's maybe on the radar, the global tennis radar, but I don't know if he's on everybody's radar in 2023. If he comes into Australia and has the Australian swing, even in contention. I mean, he's top 100, so I think he's yeah, probably okay. in contention for an Australian of a main draw debut. If he makes the third round, then I will be on your podcast in the in the cold he's, of January and not, say I was wrong. He's 97, and if he doesn't get it on a ranking, he won the Australian Open USTA wildcard challenge. Oh, so, so there he's you have getting it. into the main draw. Um, but a wise man once said, people don't talk enough about American men's tennis, so at least we're doing that here today. Um, all right, I can guess your number three. I think he's the same number three that I have. Now, the crazy thing is, and I said it earlier, Tommy Paul is 13 points behind Max Cressy in the rankings. That said, I think if you ask any follower of tennis this year who had the better year Tommy Paul or Max Cressy I think all of us would say Tommy Paul that's why again this exercise doesn't specifically follow the rankings David Kane do we both have Tommy Paul third we do and I'm I remain a little puzzled how Cressy managed to that's make crazy. that mathematical miracle because I looked at his saying, results um, and I felt hmm, 
strange. I'm like, you beat Felix round one Wimbledon, but you didn't get points for it. So like, what are you doing ahead of Tommy? And he made that fourth round. He did make the fourth round of the Australian Open, but in a very soft manner to beat a John Isner <laughs> in the first round, a qualifier, a wild card. And then he did take uh, Medvedev to four sets. So kudos to Chrissy for doing that. But no, I would, if we're, if we're going to be, again, on my couch in six months, re- reminiscing on 2022 U.S. men's tennis, I'm going to be thinking about Tommy Paul. <laughs> yeah. By the way, thank you for inviting me to your couch. Just because- Oh, anytime. You and Gil. Yeah, yeah, and I had the numbers. Already. Ben, ben Sheldon, thirty-five and eight at the Challenger level last year, forty and eleven Still overall. About now it. you're right, three and two against the top one hundred. But I'm just saying, it was he won eighty-one percent of his Challenger level matches. That's freaking ridiculous. You know, it is ridiculous. <laughs> you look for Tommy Paul. Why I have him number three over Francis Tiafo, and it's actually just an interesting note. And it was very thin margins between the two because I think Tommy. Had the better overall season, 38 and 27 to Tiafos, 35 and 25. So, Tommy, a few more wins. Uh, you look for Tommy. I mentioned Francis making uh, eight quarterfinals. Tommy also made eight quarterfinals this year, although, for what it's worth, Tommy 0 and 8 in quarterfinals this season, two of them also coming at the Masters level, Paris and Canada. Now, again, Francis had the better individual result. Tommy, 16 top 50 wins. Francis had 12. You also look for Tommy, 22 and 13 since the start of the grass court season. He was just so clearly a top 25 player to end the year. And you look for Tommy, you know, again, during that run from June 13th onward here this season, some of the matches that he was able to uh, play throughout the course of that run. It was just, you know, whether it be uh, the Kasparud match at the U.S. Open, that was obviously extraordinarily Great fun. One. Yeah, beating Rafa in Paris. I know it was a rusty, dare I say, Rafa, but that was still a really impressive win, uh, beating Alcaraz in Canada. Who could forget about that one? That one was extraordinarily impressive. You know, obviously, even during his grass court run, making the fourth round of Wimbledon to get to a second week of a major for a first time, that was hugely impressive. I thought Tommy was pretty clearly a top 32 guy, and top 32 guy is what I define as tier three. And Tommy just kind of like firmly ensconced himself. Shout out to DK from a year ago. Um, Firmly ensconced himself in that tier. And just more than anything else, and I don't know if this will be taken as a slight. I don't know if Tommy did anything great this year. But Tommy was just really good. He was really good for six months consecutively. You know, career high hold percentage, 80.1, 24.2% break percentage was a top 25 number. He was borderline top 25 club guy and was for parts of the season. He made a leap. Like, and why I think it, why I have him over Francis is I didn't know that, you know, again, not that I didn't know Tommy was capable of this, but I had seen Francis semifinal of the U.S. Open level out of Francis before. I had never seen Tommy actually go on a six-month run like this where he's this consistent for this long. And I just value that a hair more than what I saw from Tiafo this year. You know, because I think they're in the same tier now, and it took Tommy more work to get there this year than it did Francis. This is a really long explanation for why I have Tommy three and Francis four. But I think Tommy's a pretty clear top four guy. Yeah, I mean, I would still have TFO ahead of Paul just because, again, the the win over Rafa and the Grand Slam result was more impressive than 
Tommy Paul's win over Nadal and his Grand Slam result. I'm realizing now that the reason why Tommy Paul's ranked a little bit lower is because his Grand Slam fourth round got no points and Maxime Cressy's did. <laughs> sure. So that's sort of a bummer there. And for Paul, that was his Wimbledon. I think it was his Wimbledon debut. I don't think he'd even played qualifying before. So he came, comes in on the grass, makes the fourth round, you know, known as obviously the the Roland Garros junior champions. Obviously, you think of him on clay, hard courts, the fact that he was able to really adapt his game to grass. Really impressive. And again, some of those those quarterfinal losses, the one to Dan Evans in Canada, that was a rough one. So it was it was good that he was sort of able to end the year with the win over Rafa, even if we do take it with a grain of salt. It's one of those things where, you know, the wins over Serena on the women's side, the wins over Nadal or Djokovic on the men's side, sort of regardless of their form in that moment, it's kind of a big deal because it's a big mental victory. And so to be able to get that last ball over the net against someone as esteemed, you know, who must be living large in most of these guys' heads as a Nadal, a really good result. And I think the one argument that you might want to make for Paul over TFO is I think Paul is probably a better technical player off the ground. I just think that the technique is better. Obviously, TFO has made some phenomenal improvements. I mean, again, to invoke Colette Lewis, I mean, I'm to, to watch TFO as a junior, the forehand, the serve, you're thinking, how is this going to translate? And how old, how is all this charisma and sort of raw athleticism and talent going to translate? But he's been able to do it. He's really been able to shape his game into one that can beat a Rafael Nadal and a best of five match at a Grand Slam. That's phenomenal. Um, so I still certainly value that in the moment, but I would look for a Tommy Paul to make, maybe not a similar leap, but I would look for him to make a Grand Slam quarterfinal in 2023. I think that's sort of a benchmark for um, for Paul. If if the Ooh. sky for Fritz is a final and it, another semifinal for TFO, I would certainly look for Paul to make a quarter. I think that's probably why I rank them one, two, and three. Now, that's a very good reminder. So let's do that quickly, by the way. And again, Tiafo's my two. What do you want to see from him next year? What constitutes a winning year? I would like him to make at least a master semifinal, if not a final, and at least another Grand Slam quarterfinal, if not another semifinal. I like that. I'd like to see him do even better than 70%. I want to see him win three quarters of his first round matches last next year. Just don't lose the easy ones. That's how you keep a top 25 ranking. That's how you keep yourself seated. I think he is a nightmare, three out of five sets. So I want to see the over-under, I would say, is one and a half second weeks at slams. I want to see him make the second week at least twice because he can do it on multiple surfaces. And so for me, for Francis, and it's just the easiest way to summarize it, keep your top 25 ranking. You don't have to become a top 10 player next year, but be this guy again next season. And that's where it gets back to my recurring theme of hold steady. Like if you hold steady and you're a top 20 guy, Francis, you know, he's a 98. Like he turns 20, what, 25 next year? In January, I know his birthday is like 18th or 19th. It's him, Kozlov, Mo are all right around this time. Um, that would be my litmus test for Francis Tiafo. <laughs> I, I even hesitate to ask. What do you want to see from Ben Shelton next year, just to knock him off the list quickly? No, like I said, if Ben Shelton makes the Australian Open third round, makes the fourth rounds, then we can say, we saw this coming. Look at what he did on the challenge. That That is when the challenger results matter. They don't matter right now. I'm sorry, they don't. So, But if we're looking in three, four months' time and he's made the fourth round of the Australian Open and he's made the fourth round of Indian Wells or a quarterfinal Miami, then we could say, look at what he was able to build up. And that certainly put... Um, a good amount of value in building your ranking that way. I mean, Holger Runa, you know, won a lot of challenger matches before he managed to break through, but he broke through. So that's when we started to talk about Holger Runa. It wasn't, you know, apropos of his challenger results. And when we were talking about his challenger results, it wasn't because of his tennis. Yeah. 
Fair. Mine is get into the U.S. Open on your own ranking because he's got a ton of points from the last six months. He has nothing to defend from January to May. And if he gets into the U.S. Open on his own ranking in September, it means the year went well enough for him to sustain top 100 again. He's Just like a low old. bar for someone no. with so much confidence no, 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 in Ben no. Shelton. That's the bar to clear. That's not what I expect out of him. I'm saying that's the bar to clear. it's a low bar. <laughs> okay. I mean, I think he's going to exceed it, Mr. No one's heard of him outside of the few people who look. So maybe I should give him a low bar. You've lowered my expectations for him. But no, I think it's really it's going to be really tough to get into the U.S. Open on his own ranking. Again, this is a guy who made eight challenger quarterfinals and just a run of results, a lot of things to defend at the end of the year. So that would be my answer for him. For Tommy, it's so fascinating because – when I watch Tommy, and I've all, you know, the easiest comparison to make for him is David Goffin because A, they're both going to spend a lot of time in country clubs just very comfortably throughout the back half of their lives. B, it's how smooth everything is. You know, the athleticism, the fact that they're very good at everything, but maybe not elite at anything. And, you know, you look for Tommy, he's probably a little bit more comfortable moving forward than Goffin, but probably doesn't quite have the spring Goffin has from the baseline. When I look for Tommy now and what does his career look like during his prime, couldn't he be that Gofen, Carreño Busta, RBA sort of guy who's just a nightmare to deal with, deal with physically and sort of takes away the thing you want to do best, right? Because he doesn't have a defining weakness. And so he's just going to linger and he's going to make you have to work just that extra shot harder in every rally. I think coming out of this year, that's the ceiling I see for Tommy. And again, I hate this recurring theme of just hold steady, but like be a top 25 player again. Be the player you were the last six months of the year for a full 12-month calendar. If Tommy does that, now again, we can talk about, well, what do the weapons look like? Well, how can you make yourself a little bit easier to make that life a little easier to make that one final push I want to see Tommy, you know, I'm going to look this up quickly because I'm curious what Tommy Paul's first match record was this year, but I think that's where I'm at with Tommy. What do you say? I mean, I don't think the hold steady argument is unfair given the fact that three years ago, we weren't expecting much from really any of these guys in the way that, I mean, if no, speak we were for yourself, 2019, but go on. I see well, what maybe, you're saying. Yeah. Maybe you were in 2019 predicting big things for, ben, for I don't know, 12-year-old Ben Shelton. How, how young was he before the <laughs> pandemic? I mean, but I think we still don't have a lot of data on most of these guys. I mean, they don't have the resumes of, of certainly of a GoFan who's been around for a decade where we could say, okay, this is what we can reasonably expect from you going to 2023. I mean, this is, this was Tommy Paul's breakout year. This was Francis TFO's breakout year and Fritz's breakout year in many ways as well. So, I mean, I think in that respect, it's fair to say, let's see you do it again. But I also think that they're, they're running against the clock, certainly a Fritz, maybe less so a TFO, because I don't know where his ceiling necessarily is. I think Fritz certainly sees himself as one who can compete with the best. So he may be looking to achieve more in less time. Um, but with that said, I think, you know, having made a fourth round at Wimbledon for Tommy Paul, again, someone who can compete well on all surfaces, I think I would say his forehand is cap is potentially elite level talent. I mean, when we talk about a go fan, I don't necessarily view him as one with having a tremendous amount of weapons. But I think aesthetically, when you look at the Tommy Paul forehand, you think, okay, that's that's a weapon that's going to win you points. So with that said, if he can make another, you know, if he can make at least third round at most of this, at three of the four slams, make it another second week, if not a quarterfinal, you know, break that 0-8 duck, you know, and start making semifinals at some of these big, bigger tournaments. And that'd be a great year for sure. But I've also, but then again, at the same time, if he does achieve everything that he achieved this year, next year, it would be hard to say, oh, really underperformed Tommy Paul. We really were expecting a lot more from you. So 
It's hard, now, to, hard, hard to say. Tommy, 19-7 and seven in first matches this year. He had a streak, though, where he lost five of six, and four of those five losses were three sets. Just avoid that. Like, there's a handful of points right there to make up for maybe not beating Alcaraz in Canada next year or whatever it may be. Tommy's also going to be seated at slams, and it's just going to make life a little bit easier. Maybe instead of Casper Ruud third round, now you get the aforementioned Carreño Busta or RBA in that third round instead. Um, no, Maybe instead of hold steady, we're saying hold your seed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly it. It's just don't move down in the rankings. You're now in the prime of your career. You cannot afford to move down from here and have to reset again. And again, I said this at the top of the show. It's a recurring theme for these American men. They are in strike zone. We are have them right where we want them to be. And if they get a little, even if it's 2% better, well, 2% better from uh, 2% might be a little bit uh, too small. But even if it's 5% better, well, 5% better from 19 in the world is, you know, whatever it may be. Now, all of a sudden, instead of, you know, 20 or 16 in the world and you're just or whatever it may be from, a, you know, I guess that's not 5%. But you get what I'm saying from a tennis standpoint and now you're even in further strike zone as you continue to gain that experience as all of these guys have gained. With that said, all right, my top four are off the list. I Again, to recap, I have Fritz, Shelton, Paul, Tiafo. You have Fritz, Tiafo, Paul. You said it gets interesting after number three for you. For me, for me, my tier one drops off at five. So I'm curious, who is number four on David Kane's list? It's hard because... I have sort of a, a trio of guys who I could easily see maybe one, maybe two, maybe competing for number four. But I certainly look at those three as the forefront of my mind. And if you put maybe undue weight on Ben Shelton's potential and momentum, I perhaps put a little bit of undue weight on just the pedigree of a Sebastian Corda. I just look at, you know, that game, that talent, what he's been able to do for the last two to three years, maybe stalled a little bit, you know, towards the end of this season, but, you know, a guy that was able to beat Carlos Alcaraz on clay, you know, I think that gives me a little bit of the the oomph. I'm between him and Nakashima for number four, obviously what Brandon was able to do at Wimbledon, winning his first title in San Diego, Maybe Nakashima had the better overall year, but for me, still, I'm looking at Asebi Korda as sort of one of those guys. You know, if we're if we're anointing your Sitsapasas, your Zverevs, your guys that are going to ascend to bigger and better things, Sebi Korda has sort of the the breeding, <laughs> to be quite frank. I mean, he's the son of a Grand Slam champion, and so I think that kind of plays on my mind a little bit. So he's maybe a little bit high on my list, but he's my number four. No, so Sebi Korda, number six for me. And we'll get okay, to some of the other enough. guys you mentioned later. Korda's actually the first in my drop down of tiers. So again, Shelton was a tier one for me where he wasn't for you. I'll get into why I have Nakashima above Korda when we get to Nakashima whenever he is on your list, or I suppose my list coming up next. But I have Korda at six because I talked about holding steady for Tiafo, Fritz, etc. this year, uh, Tommy. You know, that's what Korda did this season coming off of last year where he did make that top 50 debut and he was clearly a top 50 guy and a prospect you had to watch moving forward. And look at age 22 to solidify himself after a tough start to the year. He finishes things 34 and 22 overall final in Hyon final in Antwerp as well. Good wins over RBA, Hachinov team on those runs. He steadied the ship to end the year. And for Sebi Korda, 22 years old, a guy who, to your point, made in a lab of what a modern ATP player needs to look like. 6'5", 
big first serve, fluid backhand, like easy weapons, comfortable moving forward, steady mentally, just every skill set, every trait you would want of a young player, Sebi Korda clearly possesses. And, you know, while there were certainly bouts of inconsistency for Korda, he had a stretch during this year where he lost, I think it was, you know, six of nine consecutive, uh, six of nine matches in a stretch. And, you know, you look for him in first matches here this year. Sebi Korda, actually a pretty solid 16 and six overall. I like that number. But, you know, what was the wow run for Sebi Korda? He didn't really have that this year. Yes, he beats Alcaraz in Monte Carlo, but then he loses to Fritz in the next round. You know, yes, he beats FAA and Estoril, loses Tiafo the next round. Has his chances against Nadal in Indian Wells, ultimately falls a little bit short at that event. Korda was on the precipice of doing really big things here this year. But, of course, you look for Sebi against top 20 opponents. Actually, 6-7 and seven overall looks better than, I think, what you would have expected Um, why I have Sebi, uh, you know, again, six on my list is it's just, he held steady this year. And that's why when I look at all the other prior players, they all made leaps in their respective categories. And I just don't think Sebi made a clear leap this year. He held steady, which is what you're looking for a young player to do. And that's why he's number six, because there is a ton of value in holding steady as a top 50 player. I've said it on podcasts before. I'll say it again. Best version of Djokovic. Best version of he who must not be named in the presence of David Kane and the best version of Sebi Korda. Those are my three favorite backhands on the ATP tour. I just think they're all better than what anyone else is capable of. That's Korda at his best. When we look towards 2023, I want you know, I was really happy. The big thing Korda played 56 matches. Most he's played in a full season. He was healthy for the majority of the year. Next year, I'm ready to see Korda make a big leap. If he's going to be one of those guys and keep pace with Alcaraz, with Sinner, with Runa, we need to see a definitive run at a slam, at a Masters 1000 event, ideally one of each. I think he's capable of that level, and that's what I want to see is him make that. And, you know, again, I have high expectations for Sebi Korda. I do think – I have him tier two, and I have often flirted with the idea of do I put him in tier one as one of those guys who I think will win a major by January 1st, 2030. Like that's the sort of level of tennis I think he's capable of playing, and we saw that at times this year. That 6-7 and seven top 20 record indicative of that. But when I look at it, DK, again, big picture. I think it's hold steady. I think next year is the year I need to see the jump. What do you say? I mean, arguably, you can say that he underperformed to a, yeah. to a degree in 2022. He had made the fourth rounds of a slam in 2020 and 2021. Doesn't do it in 2022. You wonder how much the injury at Wimbledon, you know, sort of derailed his season, building a degree of momentum coming out of the French Open and then kind of starts to get it back together in October with those two finals. So ends the year somewhat on a high, you know, to be on the ATP level wink and making two finals, certainly something uh, not to scoff at. And hopefully he's able to stay healthy and kind of start over in 2023 and see, you know, what those around him have been able to achieve while he wasn't at his best. And hopefully that motivates him to, you know, kind of get back on track and even supersede what he set at the end of 2021. 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. I think that's completely fair. And for what it's worth, again, Seppi Korda, fifth highest ranked American at number 34. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That's why I had him sixth, by the way, not fourth, because I think he salvaged – salvage is too strong of a word. But I think he really saved his season and really helped position himself well for next year with his end-of-year runs, making back-to-back finals. He also mentioned it to us in a cracked interviews. I've said this before, that this was the first year he could lift weights because he was finally healthy enough and grown enough to do it. And you just are like, well, if this is how athletic you are before the weights, like you already clearly look like a physical monster. What's going to happen when you fill out? Again, I think 2023 is going to be a big year for Sebi Corda. This year was not. This year was the hold steady at best, maybe even a slight disappointment. So that's why I have him six. But are we going to agree on number five, DK? Do we both have Brandon Nakashima? We do. We met in the middle. I like it. Make the case. Uh, I mean, he's sort of like beta Taylor Fritz. (laughs) Just like, you know, (laughs) just an all around unassuming guy, not the most charismatic, but you know, nothing to scoff at in terms of his game, you know, makes the fourth round of Wimbledon wins his first title, just someone who's going to have, I think a steadier rise. I mean, certainly when you contrast him to someone like a TFO or even a Paul and even a Corda, like there's going to be those ups and downs because there's a lot of flash and on-court charisma and a lot of things happening, whereas Nakashima is going to, you're going to get that steady product. I mean, you couldn't have gotten a, a big, a bigger personality contrast than a Nakashima Kyrgios five-setter. There was really something for everyone in that match. So I think, did he overachieve wildly? No, you know, he certainly, I think he was one of those guys who really wanted to be competing for a Grand Slam seed, you know, in time for the Australian Open. I don't think he managed to do it based on what how he did in the fall, but you know, He's one of the younger guys that we've talked that we haven't really had a chance to talk about yet. <laughs> Certainly, we wouldn't have talked about anyone younger had Ben Shelton not entered the chat prematurely. <laughs> but but at 21 years old, a lot of upside, it didn't just clean uh, a clean ground game, and that's certainly what you're looking for of a guy that age who's only going to improve. Hopefully. So here's where I disagree with you in the best sense possible, and that I'm about to hype up Nakashima, who's a dear friend of the show, Brandon from the French Open onwards. And he finished the year 41 and 26 overall, 32 and 14 to end the year for seven months. He won 70% of his matches and now finds himself inside the top 50 for the first time. Of course, during this seventh month run, he won his first ATP event in San Diego. He also, of course, finishes the season winning the next-gen finals. He makes third-rounder further at Roland Garros, fourth-round Wimbledon, third-round U.S. Open. And you mentioned the Kyrgios match. I actually think the first two sets he played against Sinner at the U.S. Open were the more impressive because that was top-10 tennis for anyone who watched their round three battle. Here's the fun number for you, and I've had this conversation with Gil. I want to have you with you as well. If I asked you relative to the field, what do you think Brandon Nakashima is better at? Holding serve or breaking serve, what would you say? I would say breaking serve at the moment. So Gil and I agree with you. Here's the fascinating number. During this 32-14 and two-thirds of the season run, Brandon Nakashima, and again, it's been all ATP-level competition, Brandon Nakashima 
holding 87.4% of the time. That 87.4 number would rank seventh on the ATP Tour right behind Matteo Berrettini. Now, you look at the break percentage, it's at 18.3. 18.3, to quote my forebearers, that's Nish Geet. It's not very good for Brandon Nakashima. The average of a top 50 player uh, break percentage-wise this year, 22.7. That 18.3 number would once again be sandwiched between Denis Shapovalov and Matteo Berrettini. You know, again, it's not what you would expect with the eye test because Brandon is so solid on both sides. And yet, and I've said this before on this pod, I'll say it again as we're recapping his season. I think this year the big focus for, uh, for Brandon was being more aggressive as a returner. I think he tried to take the ball early inside the baseline on the rise to try and just take some chances because A, he was having success with his serve, but then B, it's a gear he knows he's going to need later in his career. Similarly, this is a guy who four years ago when he was playing for Virginia in 2019 was not a good volleyer. Brandon is a good volleyer now, and that's a credit to he and his team because they have improved so remarkably in that fact. And, you know, again, you look for Brandon down the season's home stretch. I mentioned, I mentioned that 32 and 14 number. He was 28 and 3 against players ranked outside the top 50. If you can't do something elite, you are just not beating Brandon Nakashima anymore. And I think that leap as well from outside the top 50 to just clearly a top 50 player, 28 and 3 against opponents ranked outside the top 50. I think it speaks for itself. I think Brandon took a clear leap forward this season because he had started to lag behind Corda and Brooksby with the successes they had had on the ATP tour. And if I ask you coming out of 2022, who do you feel more confident moving forward about, Jensen Brooksby or Brandon Nakashima? I think more than 50% of the crowd would say Brandon, and that's why I have him above Corda and number five on my list. First of all, bold of you to assume there'd be a crowd of people here to, to cast their votes <laughs> on, on such an important topic. But yeah, no, I think <laughs> Nakashima and Brooksby are an interesting contrast again, where, you know, whereas there's a personality contrast with uh, Kyrgios and Nakashima, there's certainly a stylistic contrast between Brooksby and Nakashima, and Nakashima just plays the steadier game plays the more reliable game. I, if, when you think of like sort of the legacy of the big three guys, you look at someone like a Nakashima who seems to be one of those sort of heir apparents of your Novak Djokovic's, those guys that are really playing that modern game that Djokovic has really exemplified. Like you don't see people playing like Nadal and Federer. You're seeing them play like Djokovic and, and Nakashima is probably one of the first, you know, uh, tier two brand examples of that coming up from this next generation growing up watching them play. So certainly, yeah, I would be more more inclined to say Nakashima, as fun as Brooksby is, and Brooksby is on my list, I would say sooner rather than later. <laughs> but I would, yeah, I would, I would, I would be, I would be one of the ones in the crowd uh, voting for uh Nakashima in that one. So let me ask you this. Did I convince you to flop Korda and Nakashima on your list? No. <laughs> <laughs> we all have our we all have our darlings. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you stand uh proud with your convictions. Again, I said tier one drops off for me after number five. I think Fritz Shelton, Paul, Tiafo, Nakashima all made definitive leaps that ma- you know that we will remember this season for. Korda was we- my six. You know, again, from here, by the way, we can speed up because we won't dive into the stats oh too God. deeply. By the way, for Brand- <laughs> by the way, for Brandon Nakashima, the eye test just needs to start matching the numbers. Why is your break percentage lower than it should be when we watch you play? Like you should put in more returns than you do. You know, pairing back and finding the middle ground. I know he's going to be able to do it. I actually expect to see that next season. I think Brandon's going to fly up the rankings to start the year. He also made a really good choice to play qualifying of big clay events as opposed to 
dipping out of that portion of the calendar, which I love for his long-term development. All things trending in the right direction for our dear friend B-Knock. But again, we can speed up from here. Number six on your list. And by the way, uh, I should also mention Brandon Nakashima ninth in terms of to- – uh, excuse me, eighth amongst the top ten Americans right now. We both have him higher than that on our list. Guys who are ranked higher than they will be on our list. Opelka is the sixth highest ranked American. Again, Cressy the third highest ranked. Isner the seventh. They're still on the board. David Kane, who's number six on your list? Well, two of those three, two of those three are not on my list at all. Spoiler alert. But um, I'm going into Jensen Brooksby for number six. I think someone who, again, I think arguably held steady has a lot to talk about someone who who's on everyone's radar. I think Jensen Brooksby is someone who's on a lot of people's radar. And I think there was a lot of hype to compete with. And he largely held held up the pressure. I think when we're measuring someone like Brooksby, his game is so unorthodox that he probably doesn't have the same ceiling as some of these other guys we've been talking about thus far, but certainly one who I would expect to start seeing compete for third round, fourth round of Grand Slams fairly consistently. Like I don't I think that I think that he has at least that in him. I think he is going to run into trouble when it comes into the big guys, you know, that Alcaraz match sort of emblematic, you know, of what he what he can do and what he ultimately cannot do, at least right now against, you know, these really, really talented guys. Um, But that said, you know, his first full year on tour again, this that's some that's something that's such a. I guess a good problem to have. I mean, the state the state of men's tennis has changed a lot in 36 months. I mean, again, we were not talking about these guys three years ago. So it's hard to say, oh, I'm expecting huge things from him based off of, you know, a very still small sample size. That said, first full year on tour, hold steady, you know, and manages to make it onto, you know, the the tennis fans TV after, you know, being that impressive guy at the US Open last year. So yeah, he's my number six. You surprised me, so I have to go into the stats. Jensen Brooksby, not on my list. He's number oh, 11. Brutal. Me. Just missed, was in the honorable mention. Now he finishes the year number 48, which again is ranked ninth in terms of the top 10 Americans. Brooksby, 27 and 23 overall in the year. Last year, and there were a lot of challengers mixed in, but he went 12 and 3 in first round matches. This year, 12 and 11 in first round matches. And it was exclusively an AT. Well, I guess he played the Columbus Challenger to start his season, but after that, exclusively ATP. Round of 16, Indian Wells, impressive. Third round, U.S. Open, Wimbledon, obviously impressive as well. It was, to me, he had the tier lower version of the quarter season, if that makes sense, where it's like how quarter sort of held steady but slightly disappointing. I say the same about Brooksby, and there are just enough other guys who were impressive enough to me that I had jump him here this season. But I see your case to hold steady as a top 50 player under the age of, you know, I think he turned 22 at the end of October, so 22 now this year. That is really impressive, and he's still on the radar, and he has positioned himself to learn from whatever mistakes he made this year and improve on that 12 and 11 first match record, which, by the way, is really low hanging fruit for him to improve on. I probably have Brooksby too low. It's because I like to get cute with the bottom of my list, but I don't mind him at number six. Let's move on to number seven. I cheated here, so I'm curious to see what you did first. Who do you got? I put Cressy because I felt like that he needed to be acknowledged, and I felt like I almost was putting him too low because to put a college guy below top five on the list, I felt like I was asking for trouble, but I, I put him on <laughs> because I felt like there... He's one of those guys that we're talking about. Again, like if, if we're measuring relevance, you know, Brooksby, Cressy, there are they are those guys who sort of make it to the tail end of that sentence when you're at the TC desk and you're listing American talents, you kind of get to the end and you get to Cressy, Brooksby. These are the guys that we're going to see over the next couple of years. So I think, you know, again, making the fourth round of the Australian Open, very impressive. Does what he does against Daniel Medvedev when he gets there. 
you know, plays a unique game, you know, sort of maybe the, like the opposite extreme of a, um, of a Brooksby, someone who plays a more unorthodox game, but still fancies himself an aggressive player, whereas a Cressy plays a more traditional aggression of a, of a serve and volley style. So I think that, that kind of game scores upsets and he's still young. He's still talented. He's still very talented. So I think that that's going to pay off in 2023, maybe not to the same heights of some of the guys we were talking about earlier. Yeah, uh, it's a good argument to make. The cheating I did is in lieu of just putting Maxime Cressy to bunch them all together so I can mention them all. I just have the Bruins, just plural. So him, Mackie McDonald, Marcos Giron, who all held steady in their own way for Mackie, Marcos. They're top 75 players closer to that pension, uh, of course, are going to get to play all the slam main draws. Each of them, you know, ended their year strongly, strongly in the case of Mackey and Marcos. Or for Cressy, had three really good tournaments, right? For Cressy, it was Melbourne to start the season where he was absolutely ridiculous. Then, obviously, a, a really good win over Felix uh, at Wimbledon as well. But I forget which of the grass tournament warm-ups it was where he had it. Was it Queens Club, I want to say, maybe? No, Eastbourne, where he made the final, beat Nori, beat Draper, beat Opelka, Evans, before getting knocked out by Fritz. But it was really, you know, Melbourne... Australia, where he made the round of 16, Eastbourne final, Newport final. Like, that was it. Those he are won the, Newport. Yeah, Newport title. Those were the yeah. four big runs. Cressy went 36 and 31, or excuse me, 34 and 30 overall on the year. Like, again, it was a really good year, but did he make a definitive leap? I guess to some sense, yes, because he won a title. It showed his best. Is that workable? He was top five in hold percentage on the season. But I don't know. Like, again, it was four really good tournaments. I'll go back to the first match number, which I know you are now falling in love with. 13 and 16 in first matches this year, DK, for Cressy. Like, I just can't give him massive bonus points. When he was hot, it worked. When he wasn't, it didn't work. And so I have him seventh, and I have him alongside his – I think Cressy was there. Do you know there was a team that had Marcos Giron, Max Cressy uh, – excuse me, Marcos Giron, Mackie McDonald – and at the time, a player who was also ranked number one in the college tennis rankings, and that team didn't win an NCAA championship. That's why we watch college tennis. And by we, 2014 I mean you. UCLA, <laughs> literally, I've asked every member of that team because it's one of the like, how did you guys not win? I just like USC had no business beating you that year. Carew sells playing five. He's a top 400 player in the world. He's playing five. Like Gage Brimer with two ACLs, who was the best player in my grade. So I feel very fine. Like anyways, anyways. Um, yeah. I was my number eight. Yeah. uh, So I did, I did have him close. Is Mackie on your list? He is not. Okay. (laughs) I mean, look, I, I, I get it. Why, why Giron for you? What, what made him get inclusion? I mean, I have to be honest. I did interview Giron, Brooksby, and Nakashima, so they are very much at the forefront of my mind. I would have loved to have Giron up higher had he beaten Dominic Team in, uh, was it Hihon? It was one of those tournaments in the middle of the fall and felt like he had a really good shot of getting that win. Obviously, it ended up kind of being a, a turnaround match for Team. Started playing a lot better after getting that match under his belt, but makes the final uh, in San Diego. I think arguably had a, did he have a better run, I feel like, to make the final than Nakashima did to win the title? I feel like it was one of those things where I was wanting to sounds about right build up the run of Nakashima and feeling like well this wasn't really like a huge <laughs> especially then going off of the quotes which weren't super like florid shall we say but um yeah Giron had a really good really good summer has a good head on his shoulders is one of those guys who again 
has been through a lot. He's he's my age. He's, he's my age. He's, my age are like two, a little two bit new hips, not to use another yeah. Shakira reference, but literally two two fake hips. Yeah. Two new hips feels like a good head on his shoulders. Feels like one of those guys again. If we could, make, if we could see him making some more Grand Slam third rounds next year, he'll get that that goal of, um, I, of being I, I've seated told, sooner rather than later. I've told this story so many times, but I'm going to tell it one more time because it's one of the definitive stories. Yeah, the captive audience, so why not? <laughs> yeah, Marcos Giron. Thank you, um, Marcos Giron, Cincinnati. So we're doing interviews. Picture it. The ATP guy, I forget whom his name was, the liaison between players and members of the media. It was my first interview of the tournament. He didn't know who I was. I wasn't offended by that fact, to be clear, but he didn't know who I was, and he was just, like, suspect. Like, all right, what are you doing? What are you asking? Like, how long do you plan on doing this? Just was very cautious, reserved in trusting me to speak with these players. So fast forward, first interview, Marcos Giron walks outside to the little booth outside, like the lounge area or wherever, where they were doing the uh, interviews. And immediately he goes, Gruskin, and gives me the big high five and hug. And when I say in that moment, the ATP guy was like, wait, wait, like, who are you? Like, he knows you? Like, oh, okay, like, you're fine then. Like, you now have a level of credibility that I will accept for the rest of the week. And it was purely because Marcos Giron was so just loving and happy to see me in the moment. And so, like, shout out to Marcos Giron. It's the, the Giron stamp of approval. I had a similar yeah. moment in D.C. It was my first tournament on the road in a while, and I run into Kami Osorio for the first time in person <laughs> since she won the junior title, and I got a very similar reaction, and it felt <laughs> – Stop vindicating. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, guys all, you guys all saw that. <laughs> no, I was like, Marcos, you're the man. I was like, thank you so much for doing that. That meant a lot to me. All right. To move on, number eight on my list, because you said Garon was eight on yours, I have J.J. Wolf who just has established himself. Top 75 guy, obviously for him to make his first ATP quarterfinal in Washington, beating Shapo, beating Runa, to follow that up with a win over RBA in a third round at the U.S. Open. Then the big first final in Florence. Good wins over the aforementioned Cressy and Bublik. Look, J.J. Wolf is just now in a position, you know, he was 15 and 13 at the ATP level this year. Let's give him some credit. And now he's in a position at the start of next season to just play a really advantageous portion of the schedule. Like he will kill February, all those indoor hardcore events. And if he can get a win or two at the Australian Open, you know, get into the Indian Wells, Miami main draw. Now you're really rolling. JJ's put himself in a really good position. Let's not forget he turns 24 years old at the end of December. Like he's still pretty young for a guy who spent a bunch of years in college. He's finally healthy as well. He's number eight on my list. So Wolf is 10. I really wanted to put him at nine, but I thought, you know what? <laughs> Gruskin's going to put Ben Shelton top eight. I'm going to, I really don't want to like undersell Shelton out of respect to Gruskin. I'll put Shelton number nine. You know, it'll be, it'll be fair. And then he, then of course, what happened, happened. <laughs> what happened, happened to quote uh, Rafael Nadal. But yeah, I wanted to put Wolf higher because again, that game is just box office. I mean, talk about like that uh, JJ Wolf. Uh, Nick Kyrgios match at the U.S. Open. I mean, if you like flashy tennis, I, you, you needed to be there at Louis Armstrong Stadium and what he was able to do in the first round against, was it Batista Agut? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, just the way that man serves just completely takes flight. It's like a good three yeah. feet off the Platform ground. Platform step and explode. I mean, just, it's explosive. The racket head speed you can't not be seduced by that because you have we haven't seen that kind of just explosive power in a long time. We've seen like, you know, again, like the sort of the homogenization of surfaces, the homogenization of ball speeds. In many ways, Novak Djokovic is sort of that homogenization, just sort of tennis played right, tennis played efficiently, and to sort of see 
somebody with that kind of explosive game sort of threatened to upset the apple cart, as it were, love to see it. So it's sort of like, arguably the Algiona Ostapenko of men's tennis, you know, maybe that kind of like that kind of explosive power is just... I'm I'm always going to be there on court it's, five or otherwise to watch it's that. It's very true, and they both have low center of gravity. You're just like they are low and explode, and yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a really solid. David Kane, shout out to you because I love a good cross WTA ATP comparison, and I would say, you know. Ostapenko is a rich man's wolf, right? Like it's like Ostapenko is a little more relative to the competition, but I love that comp. That's very, very. Hey, great shot to you. I know that's a crossover here appeal, but hey, great shot to you. That's a very good comp. All right, we have your ten. I'll go through my nine and ten quickly. Michael Moe's number nine for me. Moe ends the year at one fifteen. He had been a top one hundred player in the past, but for the first time since like twenty eighteen, he was healthy and he made a bunch of challenger finals. He wins a couple challenger titles. And now he's just on the precipice of making a top 100 reappearance. And, you know, for all we've been through from with Michael Moe over the past half decade, he turns 25 years old at the start of January. Like, now is when he should be entering the pro, uh, prime of his career. And again, just physically, absolute nightmare to deal with. The other one who's 10 on my list, dear friend of the show, Alexander Kovacevic, who reached a new career high, number 158 at the end of the month, made that big run, obviously, at the end of the season in Seoul, had a really good level year, excuse me, at the challenger level. He had 16 total challenger wins coming into the season. He won 24 challenger matches this year, made his first challenger final. Really good year for Kova. He's 10 on my list. Honorable mentions I would have Brooksby, Brandon Holt, who I think deserves a shout out. Unreal at the ITF level, obviously what he did at the U.S. Open as well. Then Ethan Quinn and Alex Mickelson, who, again, we're not going to get into here. Any honorable mentions I missed, David? Anyone else you throw on the list? No, Brandon Holt's a good one. That's certainly my probably my number one honorable mention, what he was able to do at the U.S. Open. And then obviously beating Taylor Fritz, just crazy, crazy stuff, you know, and having, you know, again, the lineage is really it's so you can't. You can't knock that. And sort of the same way in similar fashion to a Michael Moe, who just a physically imposing guy. You just feel like, why should he be a top top guy? Because he looks like one. He just looks like one of those guys who would be competing for big titles. And if he is healthy, feels like in many ways the sky is the limit or certainly, you know, certainly should be in that top 70, top 60 conversation competing for top 40 and better. So it's good to know in a way that the reason why it hasn't happened yet has been more because of injuries and inconsistencies. So Look yeah, shout out you. to like shout out to my, Michael Mo. Aren't you glad you <laughs> waited till minute number seventy six of this podcast, David? Um, no, those are my shout outs. And with that said, that's our look at the top ten American seasons of twenty twenty two. I think we covered everything again. The clear picture consensus most broadly, the stock is up. But on twenty twenty two American men's tennis, the last uh, word goes to the man it should go to, and that's you, DK. I mean, first of all, the fact that we have 12, 13 guys to really talk about, not un- not totally unseriously. I mean, we've certainly had a lot of really good things to say about them is sort of the testament to the collective strength of American men's tennis. I mean, they're competing well throughout the season on all surfaces, and that's how you end up in the top 40, 50. It's not rocket science. You know, you can't have these sort of big dips. You can't skip the clay season. You can't have these sorts of hemming and hawing, you have to commit to being, you know, if the sport is totally homogenized, you have to play the game. And so I think a lot of these guys kind of get that now, or certainly this generation gets it and they're coming in, getting it. And they're taking their, they're taking their games more seriously. They're taking their preparation more seriously and the results are paying off. And suddenly they're in contention to be 
those guys who are going to be competing in the latter stages of your biggest tournaments. They're in the position. And that's all you can ask for, especially on the men's side. You know, you just want to put yourself in the position to succeed. And there's sort of something for everyone. You have a potential Grand Slam finals. You have some potential Grand Slam quarter or semifinals. You have some masters, you know, fourth round quarterfinals. If you're an American fan, you know, trotting the globe or at least, you know, watching or attending tournaments across these 50 states, you're probably going to find an American to root for if that's if that's your thing. That's never been my thing personally. I've never <laughs> been one of those root for the flag sort of guys. So a little strange to be doing this podcast, but I'm happy to do it. It feels like an opportunity to sort of flex my my growing U.S. tennis muscle. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, when you're at these tournaments, I don't know if you could have said that certainly five, six years ago, you know, a, a slew of American men to show up for and really have a realistic shot of winning these big matches. We can say that now, and that's really a testament to them, even if they still maybe feel, or at least they're putting out the message that we're still a step below. I think they're maybe a bit farther ahead than they're intimating in their interviews. Very well said. Well, then the last thing I want to ask you about on today's show before I let you go, and we're sneaking this in here at perhaps the best moment of the show, the Pass tweets today was certainly one of the biggest storylines of the day, and that's what this mini break does, talk about storylines like that. Uh, obviously, there's some Davis Cup drama that happened over the past couple days as well. Let's start with the Tsitsipas retweets about feminism. Now, again, I don't want to butcher exactly what was said, and so I am going to defer to you in this moment, DK, because I won't lie. I was a little tuned out of tennis Twitter today. We had a very – this is podcast number four of the day, and I still got one more to go for what it's worth. So I defer to you here and this is one of those moments where I'm very happy to have you on the show. Um, talk me through what happened. Talk me and the listeners through what happened and your reaction to it all. I mean, I'm glad you weren't up at 8 a.m. seeing these tweets and sort of filled <laughs> with that adrenaline rage that prevents you from going back to sleep. I mean, in a weird way, it feels like we should have maybe seen this coming, especially in light of what we're currently witnessing to a certainly a, a much more absurd degree with Kanye West. But we're dealing with, you know, an offbeat personality, shall we say, and Stefano Tsitsipas, someone who fancies himself a free thinker, someone who fancies himself an enlightened guy who goes through life looking to espouse wisdom and, you know, new agey feelings. You know, he certainly has had an odd Twitter presence over the last couple of years, sends out a lot of strange tweets that if you run them through, you know, your Twitter search or Google search, you will find that these are quotes that are not necessarily organically generated by Stefano Tsitsipas, which is Fine. You know, these are just things he's putting out into the world. There are times when he's been impressed and sort of insinuated that he's made up some of these quotes and they're sort of very clearly not something that's organically come from his brain. And if they are, they're certainly, you know, sort of the equivalent of, yeah, a duh, sort of like an obvious observation there to make. But I think things took a concerning turn this morning when he's retweeting, you know, one of these sorts of, you know, alpha male sort of guys who's an entrepreneur who's seemingly made a lot of money off of a social media software course where, you know, people can learn to be more like him. Seems like a strange scheme. I don't know who's, who's buying into that and retweets this message from all the way back in March. So you wonder who, who retweeted it into Sitsipas's timeline to begin with, to even find it uh, in the first place now in, in the, the year of our Lord, December, December 1st. And then bad enough to retweet it, which is sort of this anti-feminist message that modern feminism is a... And just quickly, I have it in front of me from Iman Godzi. Modern feminism teaches women to hate men, women to hate women that are proud to be women and makes men ashamed to be men. It's a real shame to see something that was initially pure turn so cancerous. Yeah, so cancerous is what I was going for. So it's not only a little anti-feminist, it's also sort of turfy to be insinuating that like women who are proud to be women, like 
gender constructs. If you are, if you are as enlightened as you're saying, and you're aware that you know gender constructs, sexuality constructs have evolved, and they're not as simple as man and woman. Things are are, are existing on a spectrum. And if you are as and as enlightened as you'd say, you'd be sort of aware of it. So bad enough to retweet that, and then sort of doubling down on it in the replies and saying that you know this is. Well, there was a quality. Yeah, there was a three tweet thread later. Feminism empowers people, which is one of the key reasons young people should get involved. It's a prevalent misconception that feminism is exclusively beneficial to women and that only women may be feminist. Feminism actually seeks gender equality, not superiority for women. I mean, I can read the other two as well, but it's just it's more along those lines. Yeah, it's sort of talking out of two sides of his mouth. He believes in equality, but at the same time, modern feminism is sort of the biggest assault on that, which if you are someone who is really tuned into equality, you would be aware that women who hate men are not the biggest assault on equality. Because even if they did hate men at the rate that you're thinking that they do, they certainly don't have the power to really do anything about it. Certainly the prevalence of men who hate women with the political, socioeconomic power to do something about it are is certainly top of mind when it comes to the agenda of how do you achieve equality. Went back and forth with uh, feminist journalist uh, Catherine Whitaker, co-host of the Tennis Podcast, was quick to you know enter that conversation and try to engage him. Um, but in many ways, it sort of seems like the natural progression in this day and age of this sort of guy who fancies himself a free thinker, someone who has certainly grown up in unique circumstances, who's probably, you know, in as much as he is beleaguered in some situations by his parents, is also sort of the prince of the family in, in much the same, in a similar way, not in not totally the same way to an Alexander Zverev, who is, you know, the, the young son who's going to achieve all these things. And it's the same thing for Tsitsipas, as much as he gets a lot of guff from his parents and as much as there's back and forth for them in these matches, you know, he's still the prince. He's still this enlightened guy. And he's, you know, going to make a better future for him and his family and everybody. And seeing how things have taken this turn, over the last couple of years, that this is sort of where guys of his, you know, ilk are are turning. It's it's disappointing, but it's not entirely surprising. But I think ultimately, at least if you could say that there's a positive, he's trying in some way to come from a perspective of I believe in equality, I reject the patriarchy, which was also a strange thing, and to which Catherine Whitaker said, you know, I, it must be nice to have the privilege of just not acknowledging it because to again fight for equality, you must first acknowledge the structures that are in place in order to tear them down. So with all that said, you know, you hope he seems like a nice guy. He seems like someone who maybe could be persuaded to sort of look at things in a different way, maybe talking to people more than just to sort of female friends and acquaintances who sort of, I guess, maybe told him that, I, I don't know, I've never personally spoken to a woman who has told me that the biggest assault, you know, on women's rights and women's issue are women who hate men. I don't, that's not a thing that a woman has ever said, to my knowledge, certainly not a woman who's, you know, having a serious conversation or even a, a casual conversation, certainly be a strange vlog. I would love for that conversation to be recorded. No, you can hear I, I highly Laura, doubt Maria Sakari is, is talking about that. You can hear Laura Ingram report on that 10 p.m. Fox News. Yeah, I mean that's that's a com- that's a commentator talking point, and as yeah. it was that line, sort of an, a, sort of an ironic, you know, an ironic cherry on the cake was that that line itself was lifted from a publication from a college essay back in 2017. It's this even this was this this swing. It's sort of pseudo intellectualism was, again, um, a a strange bit of plagiarism. If you're going to plagiarize, at least plagiarize sort of these you know anodyne you know self helpy quotes. Don't start don't yeah. start plagiarizing you know anti-feminist ribble rabble. It's just sort of, it's, it's disappointing because again, I think it's, I'm just saying one more thing is that it's, no, please. It was again, going back to that match between Tsitsipas and Kyrgios, I think the instinct was to put Kyrgios and Tsitsipas on sort of this 
opposite ends of the spectrum on sort of opposite sides of the coin. And I think what we're sort of seeing from Tsitsipas over the last couple of months is that maybe him and Kyrgios aren't so different, for better or for worse. Very well said. The only thing what I would, I would add, I am all for players expressing thoughts in their head, being candid about the things and the feelings and, you know, the various whatever it is they believe in. That said, I think you also need to be open to feedback when there is a plethora, dare I say, a majority of people who are telling you, hey, you're wrong in this instance. And I think the predominant response here to Stefano Tsitsipas is your understanding of feminism is seriously construed, my friend, to the point that you made and far more eloquently than I did there. And what you need to see from Stefano Tsitsipas now is an acknowledgement of that misunderstanding of just the perception of how he saw feminism. And God willing, that will happen now. It seems very unlikely. You know, I hate the the natural reaction, take his phone away from him. Just don't let him on Twitter anymore. I think that stuff is stupid. Like, of course, it would be beneficial for anyone to spend less time on social media. But, like, that's not the solution. The solution, I think, is what people have done, which is engage him like Catherine Winokur did and explain why his perceptions were so, constru- you know, so incorrect. Um, and so that's really my response to it, DK. I don't know. Final word goes to you. It was not something I expected to wake up to this morning. That's for I sure. know. It just seems like, again, but this Welcome is- Welcome to you know, December. Given, so, again, this is, it feels sort of classic. Like, this is sort of yeah. a classic way to sort of like, unfortunately, you know, when you sort of feel put upon and oppressed, it's just easier to blame the other. It's easier to blame, you know, and an, another oppressed party to say that they're the reason why life is difficult. I don't- I mean, certainly for Stefano Tsitsipas, I certainly don't think his biggest problem is that women are being raised to hate men. That shouldn't be. He's, you know, that's certainly yeah. it's just a strange thing. And I don't know what where he thought where he thought he was going to go with that. I guess. I mean, certainly we've sort of admire it. We maybe just lightly cringe at things he said in the past. And so that 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 cringe meter has really just gone off the uh gone off the radar, as it were. No, very, very well said. Well, with all that in mind, that'll do it, folks. Off season, rocking and rolling as our coverage will continue of it all here at Cracked Rackets. You can assure, uh, be assured that David Kane will be joining us at least one more time here this month. That said, DK, what do you have cooking for us over at Tennis.com? Oh God, some time off. Leave me alone. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. There, um, We're going to be doing some retrospective content over the next couple of weeks at Baseline, looking at your favorite quotes, your favorite fashion looks, your favorite moments from the season. Just, you know, tis the season to be looking back on the previous season. And sure, in, in, in very short time, we'll be looking ahead to 2023. So we've got all that to look forward to. But in the meantime, we're going to be taking a, lo- a long and loving look back at 2022. And uh, I encourage everyone to come on the ride with us. It's going to be fun. What's the name you and Liv that you do the back and forth called the, the volley. The, the volley. <laughs> if you want to use our Ben Shelton back and forth as an impromptu volley and just take the transcript, just know you have verbal consent from. I mean, here. it's just it would just blow off. It would just blow up our numbers. <laughs> yeah, it would I mean, really. It would put Ben Shelton on the map. It would put him that, on the radar. That's what I'm saying because everyone reads the volley. But no, we look forward to seeing all the content. We look forward to, of course, having you back on this show. Of course, shout out as always to our super producer and number one in DK's heart, our 
dear friend Daniel Westoff for the f of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. Of course, shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point for the support. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. As DK mentioned, it is the season for lists, for rankings. We've got another one of these postseason-themed shows for all of you listeners tomorrow with Damian Koost. But for now, for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? Hey, great shot. What else do we tell them? Read up on your modern feminism. <laughs> yes. That again. No, but the, yeah, no, leave it in. But what else do we tell <laughs> fem- them? Fem- feminism and feminism. <laughs> yes, exactly. Read up on your modern feminism, folks. But also, what show is this? Yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's your fault for not having me on on, on enough mini breaks lately. And that's the break. <laughs> there it is. Leave it all in. That's the end. It gets us over the ninety minute mark. Thank you as always, my friend. All right, that's we done you. Yeah.